Folks, welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk, streaming worldwide, wherever you are in this great galaxy. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day today. And uh, as I work through um, the definitive, definitive Johnny Vidakovich files, more of a painting abstraction of his career, uh, these little tidbits of, and nuggets of information come about that not only enlighten me but inspire me uh, during this time, of, of dystopic time in some ways uh, because of all the crises that are inflicting our country and the world. And uh, one of the cats that he talked about, um, I've been transcribing these interviews and he uh, mentioned uh, this rhythm section that I was unfamiliar with uh, that included my guest, and uh, the bassist Bill Huntington, and uh, I talked to Bill yesterday and absolutely had a ball with this cat, and now I get a chance today to come full circle with an incredible pianist and, uh, you know, composer and arranger and teacher in his own right. Frank Pizzullo, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You know, I just wanted to know if you uh, grew up and, you know, amongst your peers, when you would listen to the radio, because you guys were essentially autodidacts and, and, you know, you really learned music by ear before you learned how to read. Um, if, if it was about identif- being able to identify the, the, the Art Tatums and the Bud Pals, that basically you should, have, you should be able to identify the cat within eight bars of hearing them play on the radio. I would agree with that. Can you talk about some of the cats that you heard on the radio where the individual sound was so visceral and it just was intoxicating for you? Well, uh, my early influences from the time I was probably around 14 or 15 were a a group of pianists that uh, I really uh, uh, thought was, I thought they were really great, of course. And, uh, but I think the first pianist was Hampton Hawes. Uh, I cannot Hampton, believe you just – dude, my, he's my favorite, man, by far. Really? Dude, because <laughs> there, there, there was an album that he did. Um, I remember I interviewed the late, great Ndugu Chancellor, who you know, is most well-known for playing on Michael Jackson's albums, but the dude was a ferocious drummer, jazz drummer back in the day, and – when we did one of our interviews, he told me, he's like, there's this, if you want to hear about the serious growth of instant, instantaneous composition on the bandstand, uh, it was um, um, a trio album, uh, High in the Sky, with Leroy Vinegar and Donald Duck Bailey and Hampton Hawes, and they're playing in an airport. And it's, it's the great, I've never heard it. And then I love his electric stuff. He's my favorite. I don't know the contemporary stuff which i think you're probably referring to so can you talk about what's because i mean dude he's my man i i mean he's my go-to man well i mean uh you know as far as the early recordings of course he was pardoned by john kennedy you probably know that he was the last person pardoned by kennedy yeah yes he was and uh you know he was one of the influences uh that i had and uh, um as well, and then after after Hampton Hawes came for me, Wynton Kelly. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've been accused of playing exactly like him during those days. Well, there's those nothing. There, that, that, that's a, that, yeah, that's a compliment, you know. Yeah, 
Uh, and then Bud Powell, uh, Oscar Peterson. And I think that probably those four were the ones that uh, influenced me the most as far as early early on. And you know, anywhere between the time I was 14 and probably 18 or 19. You know, I wanted um, to, you know, Frank, because what I'm trying to get at is like um, guys like Reggie Workman and people like that, you know, when the, and you listen to albums by like Ahmad Jamal and Larry Willis and Herbie when the Fender Rhodes came in and people, the, 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 the minute the electric, the electric electronic keyboards came in, um, it's just similar to the string bass. You, you you can't tell who they, the person is as well. You, they lose their identity. And that's the biggest issue in music today. In my mind, melodic improvisation is just the that's idea. That's true. Is, there's, you, there's, you, a, there's you a homogenous. I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's just... Well, it's, it's, how do you account for their the, the fact that they all... Because I know... I mean, again, the records are one thing. But, you know, those cats were going on the road banging pianos back into tune, finding their own tuning. I mean, they had the most unorthodox uh, learning system, and I just wanted you to talk in your own mind about how they developed their own individual sound. Because everybody had, like like I said, Winton Kelly, you know, I, actually what I meant to say was, um, I didn't mean to say that was a compliment, because your generation actually, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, man, you sounded just like so-and-so, a lot of cats would want to slit their wrists because it was all about individuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I agree with you. Uh, as, far, as far as the electronic aspect of it, I mean, I played in the 70s. I mean, I played electric piano. I hated it. I didn't like it. Um, especially with uh, that same group with Bill Huntington and Johnny Vodakovich and Al Valetto. In fact, we did an album together and I wrote most of the music for it. Um, what's Coach the name of the album? Coach's, Coach's Choice. Oh my, dude! I need to find that immediately, dude. Are you wait? So it was Huntington on electric bass? It was. Oh, this. I mean, I know and, you didn't uh, like it, but I gotta hear. I gotta hear that stuff, man. That's so great. But the only pianist, the only pianist that I can tell you that I feel yeah. has the same kind of clarity playing uh, a Rhodes piano. I could identify Bill Evans. I could identify him if he was playing electric piano. Right. There's no question in my mind about right. that. As far as other other jazz pianists playing electric pianos, um, you know, I think some of them were so intrigued with the sound that they were getting that uh, you know that the, the, you know, maybe they, in a way, they weren't even paying attention to you know what the end result was going to be. But I think you're right. If you start grouping electronic pianists together and clumping them together, you you get to a point where you couldn't really tell one from the other, uh, uh, with well, the exception, I, as I said, of Bill. Yeah, well, I think you're, uh, there's that from left to right where he's playing Fender Rhodes and he's got Sam Brown on there. And, you know, that's just – I think that has to do with, like, you know, placement of the notes. But, I, I, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get – like, I asked Huntington last night, and it was, it was pivotal. And, um, and I'm trying to – and I want to ask you the same thing. Basically – you know, you go back to this time when it was led by Scotty LaFaro. Obviously, his forefathers were guys like, you know, Jimmy Blanton and Slam Stewart. But, but then Scotty turned the bass into a, not a lead instrument, but a conversational instrument. And then Peacock, mm-hmm. rest in peace, followed. 
And Huntington's talking about how, you know, there he is at 16 years old, whatever he was, in his bedroom, and he's he's working this stuff out. But he's still, in the live setting, was walking. He, he liked the walking bass, and it was it was traditional. It was more trad uh, or maybe, yes. maybe even bebop-ish. And, and then his suddenly, one night, his dad passes away. And, like, it's tragic, but... It gave him this spark to be like, man, you don't have. There are no guarantees for for tomorrow. You better play and yeah. be yourself. And he, the next day, he got up there. And I can't remember the piano player's name, but the, he got up there and started to play his version of, you know, Scotty Lafaro. And it ne- he never looked back. And he really yeah. he attributes that as being the beginnings of him finding his voice. And I wondered if there was a similar story that uh, that you could relay as far as that conversational Claire Fisher, Peacock, Bill Levitt, that early 60s intoxication, con- acoustic conversation where um, where you found your own voice. Well, it took me a while. No, I mean, I, 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 I think I could place it there. I probably didn't find my voice until I got into my 20s. Um, and then, um, and then thereafter, but, uh, as, as far as, as, you know, as far as finding my own voice, I mean, I, as I said, I was probably 24, 25 and, um, I was, I was playing a lot, uh, a lot of bebop and, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm from upstate New York. That's where I'm originally from. Are you? Um, wait, are you? Don't even tell me you're from, like the Pithod, Rochester area. Don't even say. Oh yeah, absolutely. Frank Cerzeri? Are you kidding me? That whole group, the Jazz Brothers, when Gap Mangione. Oh my God! I cannot piano. believe. I, that, I cannot. Be, you're blow, You played the Pithod Club with the with the guys bringing. You played that club. Oh yeah. Yes. Holy yes. shit. That's freaking class. Okay, uh, so you so you yeah. so cuz I just interviewed um uh Tony Levin who him, him and mm-hmm. were you, was that were you earlier than that cuz I mean him and Gad were like cooking the group, you know, Gad Gad they were at the Eastman school and uh Right. They was primarily classical instruction, but at night they played these gigs and Gad didn't have a rhythm partner, so him and Levin wound up backing up people and Famadou Don mm-hmm. Moy from the AACM was up yeah. there, and Gap. And- Eleven, I never actually played with, but uh, there were there were other people. Did you ever interview Mike Melito? Oh, I, I need to. No, is he still sure. with us? Oh yeah, Mike. Sure. I need to That'd get to him immediately. Thing. Yeah, you need. No, to I got. To you know who I got to? Thank God was was Strazeri. and I got to Barry Harris. Barry Harris was working up there, I think. I don't know, Strazeri. Oh, wow, he was. Yeah, Strazeri. Thing. One, one night, there was a place, a little club called the Salt and Pepper. One night, I went up there to hear Barry Harris play. Charles McPherson was playing saxophone. Oh, yeah. But what happened is, Barry Harris is late for the gig. He wanted to know if there was a pianist around. So I said, I, I said I'd love to play. <laughs> so I sat down and started playing with him, and I played the whole gig. <laughs> Barry, Barry, yeah, yeah. No, I just I love it. I mean, there were no cell phones. God forbid you broke down in the middle of nowhere. There was no AAA. It wasn't like, like if you, or you yeah. just were strung out or whatever it was. Well, like, here's, here's a quick, here's a quick story. I drove Sal Nistico oh, for his debut with the Jazz Brothers from Syracuse, which is where I'm from, to Rochester. We were 45 minutes late. 
we walked in. There was some saxophone player that was playing with them. He, uh, they asked him to step down. Sal got up and played. We never know what happened to the saxophone player that was playing with Chuck. Never, since this day, we don't know where he went. And Sal played so well. He just blew him away. I was playing, he was playing with Mangione? Yeah. Yeah, no, because Gap. Um, well, so, so I mean, because I remember, this is so interesting. I, you know, um, it's such an honor to talk to Frank Pizzullo right now. Um, but I remember, like, that whole contingent um, up there. Well, was, you know, there was Joe, Joe Romano, who was marvelous. He was like the, the Sonny Rollins of upstate New York. Wonderful saxophone player. Well, the, and, uh, yeah, no, the one thing I wanted to ask you about, something similar was, like, um, so Don Menza was from Buffalo, and he Buffalo. and he he came back. Jamie Noto also. Oh God, the sick player. Uh, the the yeah. the um, so Menza comes back from uh, Germany in World War II, and luckily he was in. He would have been in hard infantry, but he wound up being part of the band, so he got to play yeah. in Munich. I know and, it. and then um, he came mm-hmm. back and was like really depressed. It's kind of funny for to hear to think, hear me say this now, but he said he was like really depressed to by the scene, and he actually like sold his horn back. And then one night, in the, somewhere he drove to Oneont, you know, Sonny Rollins and Frankie Dunlap was playing at some you know uh, hotel restaurant. He drove three hours in a huh? driving blizzard to 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 see Sonny, and Sonny played to like three in the morning. And Menza walked out of this place and drove back to Buffalo, absolutely. Blown away, went to the store, picked up his horn. Obviously, the rest is history. But he talked about Sunday afternoon jam sessions. At the time, there was the Black Union and the White Union. And the Black Union Mm -hmm. let him play. You know, they'd let him know if he needed to work on stuff. But that was where he was shedding. I mean, did you have have opportunities to play... you know, at the black unions, you know, or in where in Syracuse, was there one in rock, you know, wherever did you have a chance? No, to- they didn't. They, they, no, that, that, that didn't occur until New Orleans. That's why New Orleans has got two numbers, right? Two, two union numbers. One was for the people who were black that went through one door. The other one was for the white members. Absolutely. That was in New Orleans, but that was many years later. Now the, uh, now the upstate playing that I did was, it was basically Syracuse, Rochester and Buffalo. With all of the musicians that came out of that area, including, well, of course, I knew Strength of but he left and went to California. But Sam Noto, Larry Cavelli, um, you know, the, the Italian mob is referred to. Dude, I love the Italian, the, the Italian, the Italian, the, 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 it was the jazz mafia, dude. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Mike Polito, can, that's, that's why you need to talk to him. I Mike need to get to Polito immediately, that. yeah. No, but I mean, you know, that he's was... A little, he, go ahead. He's a young... You know, I mean, I was really fortunate because I play. I, I got to play with everybody. Dizzy Gillespie, I worked with, uh, you know, James Moody several times. Sonny Stitt for about four or five months. I mean, I worked with, uh, you know, and worked with him in New Orleans. I worked with him in Milwaukee, Chicago. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on with. with no, I just people. I'm trying to get. Are we are, are we are we talking like 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 mid late fifties? Is is that where we're at right now? No, not not no. We're not no. We're talking seventies now. No, 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 but, but I mean the, the, the Pithod stuff, the Buffalo, the Syracuse stuff. When oh, was the that? Pithod, we're, the Pithod, we're talking more uh, between 61 and 65. Yeah, that's where I want to stay right now because, I mean, you know, Richard Groove Holmes or Jimmy Smith or, you know, those cats mm-hmm. would be 
they'd rent Hearst's and then they'd throw the B3 in the back and Shirley Scott and they'd come rolling through these towns in upstate New York. So, I mean, were you, did you actually, did you, I mean, I've interviewed guys that were in bands with Don Patterson and Billy James and Sonny Stitt and they were playing B3. Oh yeah. There was a place called, there there was a place called the Jazz Corner. It was in Syracuse, New York. Wow. And uh, the first time I heard Sonny Stitt was with Billy James. Um, So great. And, um, Bill Evans played there too, um, and Roland Kirk, and uh, several other people. It was kind of, it was kind of weird. The uh, the guy that owned the place, uh, you know, we called him one time and said, well, you know, Bill Evans is coming in to play piano. And he said, oh great. He says, you know what? He said, we just painted the piano. He'll love it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they painted this piano completely white. It was awful. It was out of tune and everything else. I don't know how he did it. But Bill Evans came in and made it sound like it was. Uh, Steinway. I don't know. I, I can't still to this day. I can't figure out how he played it, but uh, he, he sounded great. You know. Uh, I mean, I guess that going back to the how can you account for Hamp and and Bill Bud, um, Barry? Harris, how did how did those guys all develop their individual? Was it because their ears were huge and they learned the music by ear before? I mean. That's what Kenny Burrell told me. He's like, you know, it was like we had our own jazz I think, school. Uh, well, I think that's I think that's true. They did. They, uh, you know, and Bird was the biggest influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, uh, without a doubt, um, those rhythms, those early rhythm sections, uh, you know, they 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 just followed the uh, followed the uh, followed the music. I mean, uh, learned the tunes, you know, listened to the solos. You know, there weren't much around with transcriptions at that time, but of course those developed after a while too, so you could see when people were playing. That was helpful from an educational point of view, but I don't think that, you know, that was involved at that time. It was, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was really an ear thing um, and, and, and a passion to strive to try to understand the music and, and play with people. Like, when you, so you would say, did you, I guess there was a, that soul jazz era in the mid 60s with Sonny. I mean, were you ever do, play, kicking pedals and playing B3? I did for a while with Chris Powell. Chris Powell and the Blue Flames was a group from New York. Oh, Chris boy. Powell was a drummer. Oh. Charlie Parker played with him. Oh, please break so this down. I need, to to I need to hear, you were on the Chitlin circuit with this cat? No, I played locally in Syracuse, New York, with a little place called the Brown Jug. Oh my God, this is epic! And you were—were were you kicking pedals? Yes. Oh my God! You know most cats don't do that, as you know. You know most of it's left-hand bass, but you. Well, I was intrigued by the—I was intrigued by the pedal, uh, because it's nothing but a keyboard, obviously. But you know, you—you—you'd you, have to spend some time. That's where you spent your time when you learn to play a B three. You spend your time on the pedal. Forget about the keys. You know, I already know how to do that if you're uh-huh. a pianist. But you have to spend your time on the pedal. So, you you, you know, first approach to it is to play on two and four. So of, of you know, of the measure. Uh, and then after that, you can start to develop it so that you actually can play four beats too. And I didn't become proficient at it, but I was good enough to play with, you know, a lot of different people. I just want to be. And then there was you. I, I, I need. You know, you know, we're, we're doing. A, I need to stay with the brown jug for a minute. So, how did you connect with? Right. Was this guy Powell? How do you spell his last name? Chris Powell. Chris Powell. Now he was he was Bird's drummer, and then he. How did you? 
Well, how did you wind he came up? To Sy- he came to Syracuse, New York, and played in a little play. I said, well, I, I said, first of all, I don't have one. And he said, well, I do. And uh, so, uh, you know, the next thing I knew is I was spending some time with his B3, learning a little bit about how to play it, and then I was on a gig with him. <laughs> That's the way that went. Well, who was, and then what was it? A, it was tenor, guitar, B3, drums, or what was it? There was a drummer. There was a. Uh, there was a. There was a, 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 a guitarist named, by the name of Marcus Curry. This is playing guitar. Ridiculous, dude. I mean, tell me you have analog cassettes of this stuff, man. This is where I want to hear, man. You guys were burning. Um, no, what I want. You know what it is. This is what I like. Did it allow? Were you aware at the time? Because you know, without the bass player. Uh, you know, guys like Groove Holmes or, you know, uh, uh, Jack McDuff, those guys were serious pedal kickers. Obviously, they became very accomplished yeah. doing it. My, my, favorite, well, my favorite jazz organist of all was Don Patterson oh, yeah. for me. Yeah, well, he was with Billy James and Sonny Stitt. That was like... He was. They just they yeah. wore people out. I mean, they were relentless, man. They wouldn't stop, you know, I and know. They, they were just pounding. I it. know it. And I just wonder if you talk... If... It, if um, you know, I got just yeah. just so just so you know, I got tapes, uh, CDs with Sonny Stitt. Uh, oh my God, oh. Ray Brown. Uh, I need. Uh, I'm going to send uh, you. I'll send you my mailing address. I'd love to hear anything you can voice on me, man. I'd love. All right. It. Uh, yeah. And, and you can go to my. Uh, listen, we when you when you when you send me, I, I can I can uh, email. Uh, I, I can Text, send you yeah, uh, email. Yeah. I got all my stuff on on iPad. All these different players that I'm playing with, I can mail you this stuff. Like, when you, going back, I just want you to talk about the aesthetic. I mean, I know you were in the, that you taught and at, at Ball State, and, and I, I, but with Pat. Well, I was at the University, of, well, before that, I was at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And then, before that, I was the director of jazz studies at Loyola in New Orleans. What I want you to talk about is the is is how you learned from your elders like Powell like I remember Abercrombie John Abercrombie told me you know his first gig was with Johnny Hammond Smith another guy who kicked pedals and mm-hmm. you know basically he had good time like he had good rhythm you you wouldn't get a gig if you did, you still can't get a gig if you don't have good time but you know it, like right. Johnny was yelling at him like they like he tell he teach him the tune very basic chord structures and then you just kind of learned it by ear, and you needed to learn it quick, or they'd get on you about it. But I mean, what was this edu- What was the school like for you growing up in Cuse, Utica, Rockchester? I mean, what was that? I, I don't want to glorify it, but it was definitely no. a different modality. You're right, and the guys that were, the, the, the were Sam Noto, for example, uh, just to use him as an example, and Peter Copio. Was a wonderful drummer from Syracuse. These guys were a little older. You know, we're probably talking about maybe ten, twelve years older than us uh, in, in my my age group. But uh, the way the way we learned was we'd be playing a tune, and maybe you'd play a wrong chord change. Uh, they they would stop the whole band, you know, and say, "Look, you need to learn this fucking tune. <laughs> if you don't learn it, yeah, I'm gonna come back there behind the piano." <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. fucking strangle you. No, no, I mean, Phil Woods, Phil Woods, they, they, yeah, yeah, that's right. Phil Woods said that Freddie Green would pull pull a leg out of your ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, they'd really, they they were, you know, there, there were there were a couple of times where they sent me home. They said, "Go home and learn them." 
We'll play without you. Right. You know, so I mean, tell, that's, that's the way those guys, that was the way you had an education in those days. Nobody said, here, wait a minute, I'll pull the music out from the from a briefcase or something like that or an iPad. Nobody knew what the hell those things even were. They didn't have such a thing, you know. Uh, and just, <laughs> so, you know, like, I mean, just, just for the, just for the, for the person who will be hearing this now or later, I mean, like, you just can't kick a student out of your classroom at, uh, you know, Loyola or, uh, you know, if they're fucking around, that's one thing. But, you know, you kind of, I mean, yeah, okay, maybe you were humbled, but you did know what you needed to work on. Like, Jackie Byard would do that with his students. They'd play yeah. something in all 12 keys, Cherokee in all 12 keys. Someone would fall apart in, in, in F, and then Jackie would say, okay, uh, now what we know, you know, we need to work on, we'll, we'll see you next week. And, you know, it was, what was it about, I guess here's the point. What was it about also if you if you followed this, you know, listening to the radio and learning to play tunes, all types of genres in all 12 keys, how did that unlock your ears to be able to hear beyond? Because with what's happened today, because cats are learning to read before they're learning to hear, their ears are locked. So they can't hear what you heard. Your ears were bigger. Can you explain the growth of your ears? And because of that ability to, to have to play through, play tunes in all 12 uh, you know, in all, in all. 12. Yeah, well, not, yeah. Well, I think not having the music was an asset because you had to learn it. Uh, uh, you, for me, it was wearing out LPs. It wasn't so much the radio. I mean, I would put things on uh, in LPs and just wear them out until the records were actually worn out. Can you which and specific which 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 channel? Yeah. And I would, and I would sit down and mimic everything that I was listening to: Hampton, Hawes, Wynton Kelly. Uh, any of the pianists that I mentioned before. You know, I'd play little fragments of things, turn it off, put it back on again, <laughs> off, on, off, on, off, on, on, hours and hours and hours. And that's how I learned. So you learned, someone would call a tune, and you may not necessarily even know the name of it. You knew it by ear, though. You had practiced it so many times. Well, I think in most cases, the guys knew the tunes. I mean, uh, you know, they would say, let's play How High the Moon or play Ornithology. Or let's play, uh, you know, rhythm changes in the key of B-flat, blues in F, G, C, A-flat, whatever. Uh, you know, you didn't even have to know the name of the tune. If you knew it was a blues, it was a 12-bar form. So whatever. I mean, uh, take it from there, you know. This is interesting. I, I'm curious because so... Was there like um, a gig that, you know, that you can definitively say, uh, you know, where you walked out of there saying, well, I'm still on the forever journey of learning, but um, I feel confident enough in my own voice to go out and go to New Orleans. Was there a demarcation point for uh, Pizzullo in, in the upstate New York region or wherever you were at at that point? Well, I think when I got the call from El Boleto in August of 1971, hmm. I had already played with just about everybody there was to play in upstate New York. And I ran into Bill Huntington in underground Atlanta. He was playing with a pianist from Boston by the name of Ted Howe. I happened to walk past this place, and I heard this trio. And I thought it was a jukebox. So I walked in. Bill was playing piano, uh, bass. Right. And we started talking. And he said, geez, would you like to sit in? I said, sure. So I sat in. 
play piano. About two months later, I got a call from El Boleto. He said, hey, he said, I uh, wonder if you'd be interested in coming down and playing. He said, uh, Bill Huntington just moved back to uh, uh, New Orleans, and he said he heard you in Atlanta. He said, spoke very highly of you. He said, that uh, would you be interested in playing with my quartet? Well, one thing led to another. I flew down. I thought, didn't know whether I was going to stay, but I thought I would try it, see if test it out, see if I liked it there. And one thing led to another, and I ended up staying. I was there about 10 years. What? Who, so what band were you in that Huntington heard you in? Well, he was playing with Ted Howe. He was playing with his own, with a quartet, and then it around Atlanta. Oh, so then he let, and then he heard you when he sat, when you sat in with them. That's right. So what were you doing down, yeah, what, what were you down there for? I was basically visiting Atlanta. At that time, mm-hmm. it was a, it was sort of a hotbed. I mean, Duke, Duke Pearson had a band, uh, Freddie Cole was playing there uh, in the top of the Marriott. There was various, various things to do as far as just go out, have a little vacation, and listen to music. I dig. Um, so, what did Bill have to say, by the way? Did he? Did he? Did he I'm gonna, did he, did dude. He, did he, we were, we were on. I'm, I cannot wait to send you this interview. We, we, I mean, we're, we just, we just did part one. I mean, he was talking about. Elvin Jones bouncing the drums like basketballs after a gig, and Coltrane thinking that he goes. Sometimes I think Elvin has lost his mind. I mean, we went deep, yeah. deep into the bag. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. you know, you already were marinating. I mean, Strazeri and I did an epic interview, and that guy was already had both feet on the ground. Then he went out to the West Coast, and he's playing with Carmel Jones and Harold Land and all those cats. But I mean, mm-hmm. definitive like. There was regional hotbeds of activity when jazz was a popular music, and what, oh yeah, when you got to the Playboy Club, that was a little bit more like. Can you just take us through like um, when you first got there? I mean, you know, because Carlin, all the, the the comedians would come, or you'd be playing for dancers. Like, was it markedly different? Was it an adjustment for you? It was very systematic. Um, at one time at the Playboy Club, there were three bands playing. Ellis Marcellus had a trio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Boletto's quartet was there. And then they would have other music dispersed and throughout the Playboy Club. It had basically four floors. Um, as far as our routine was concerned, we would play a set, a jazz set, for an hour downstairs on the first floor. Then we would go up to the second floor where the show was going to be. The show would be uh, essentially an opening. We'd open the show with playing two more jazz tunes. Then Al would introduce whoever the comedian was going to be. He'd come on for probably a half hour. uh, Maybe just prior to the comedian, there'd be a showman of some kind, like a magician. or uh, We we talked about bird bird shows. uh, It could be anything like that. Absolutely, yeah. It could be somebody, you know, throwing balls up in the air, a juggler. Or whatever that would be like a 15-minute thing. Now when they got done. The comedian and the and the and the, the other showman. We go back and we play another two jazz sets. So we're consistently playing jazz throughout the week, and we're talking six nights a week. I mean, how many how many hours a night? What, what time did it start? What time did it end? Okay, so let's say the first set was uh, probably seven o'clock. We'll go, we play till 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock, we go up there, the show would start. Uh, that would continue along with the magician and the juggler, and then we'd go back and play two more sets. So we're probably looking at uh, 8 to 10.30, 8 to 11, that, that time frame. 
and then seven. I'm sorry, seven to seven to uh, ten thirty, seven seven to eleven. So like essentially, it was, it was a four hour span. Yeah. But we were off in between. You know what I mean? It wasn't like we were playing a. Uh, yeah, you, you play know, a forty minute night, jazz so. set. You know, but I mean, like like, but basically, you're talking about. I mean, that's about after it's all said and done, just working wise, that's like 30 hours of music a week. That's right. I mean, that's insane. Of lo- And that means you went home with bread in your pocket. I mean, did you even have to, I guess, like, what did you learn from the, like I told you that, that whole Maynary thing. I mean, they went, I mean, it just seems like a foreign time when we went to all these places, you know, um, these, they were still shrouded in darkness and, you know, in some ways from the rest of the world. But, you know, we went there and jazz was the musical language that we brought along with all these other... Well, one of the, yeah, well, one of the things that intrigued me about the whole thing of Al Boletto calling me to play the Playboy Club was this was going to be a real jazz gig six nights a week. Hmm. Who ever heard of this kind of thing in, I mean, in, in upstate New York? I mean, I would play a Friday and Saturday here. I'd play a matinee. I'd play, you know, another jazz gig on a Tuesday night and then play on a Thursday. But there was nothing up there that was going to be allow a steady jazz gig. So when he called me and gave me the format, which I've just given you, I thought, wow, this sounds like something really interesting. Where am I going to get that opportunity to play 30 hours a week or whatever it is? And so that went on for four or five years before it closed. Um, so... I mean that is absolutely, and, and when you and when you joined the, the so essentially, how, was it a quartet or was it a big band? That existed with Al playing alto, Bill Huntington playing bass, and Johnny Vodakovich playing drums. My God! And my and myself, and there was a girl singer. Her name was Angel Trasclair. So Mercure, oh. I know we've uh, Johnny and I have talked about this because he he did some sessions with her, and it. My dad was like. Is there any footage? And there's nothing on YouTube on, about on her. They're, the records are so hard to find. What a mercurial, what. brilliant cat! But know? she is. But she is. But she is on that coach's choice. A lot of information is on that record. That's why you need to find it. You can get it. I've seen it advertised. Well, you don't by chance have any extra copies laying around, do you? I don't think I'm so. Gonna, but I'm, I'll look. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Coach's choice. No, I might. If I have one, I'll send it to you. I'd be happy to send. It. Um. Uh. One of the things I got to do today, uh, I don't know how long our interview was going to go, but I think it should be continued. Oh, we, I mean, uh, we're just we're, gotta, we're just starting to cook here. I mean, you, I, I gave you a little know, time for the plumber. Well, I, you know. I, I know, I know. We got. I, I got to <laughs> go see my, about my foot. I dropped something on it or oh. some goddamn thing. I don't know what it was, but it swelled up. It's a little better now, but I got a couple of purple toes. So I made an appointment with the podiatrist, which is he's about a half an hour from here. So I got to drive out there and have him take a quick okay. look at it. Okay, right, so uh, then let's just text. I mean, I'll send you the Huntington interview, and I will hold on to this so we can. Com- we'll do a set. We'll do a set one point five and finish and uh, keep keep moving this thing along. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Tomorrow's. Uh, yeah. Let, uh, you want to you want to do tomorrow? Let's see. Me think. Mm-hmm. That'll give you some time to look I for an extra best, copy of Coach's Choice. Day, I think the best day to do would be Thursday. Can All right, so can, can we do can we do Thursday at um, uh, four p.m. Charleston time? 
Yeah, 4 p.m. on Thursday. I'll mark it down, and I'll expect you to call me, and we'll just we'll just continue. Coach's choice, man. All right. <laughs> yeah, see yeah. if I can find it, okay? Yeah, good to hear you, man. Right. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, yeah, nice talking to you. Right, you Thank too, you so man. much. Peace. Bye. Yeah. Well, you never know what's going to happen on the Jake Feinberg Show. Uh, what an honor talking to legendary cat Frank Pizzullo. Uh, that's it for the Jake Feinberg Show, and we will see you back here at 4 p.m. with Neil Diamante. Until then, we'll see you later. We can finish our interview now, at least part one of it. Frank Pizzullo, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Oh, thank you for having me back, Jake. I appreciate it. You know, um, so I interviewed um, a cat, uh, Barry Miles, a great piano player, and he used to talk about uh, Harry Abramson, uh, his radio show... Uh, on a good night, on a clear night, could travel from all the way from the bastion of upstate New York all the way down to, like, Delaware. And this was during the time of AM radio. Um, It was a very different time. Uh, It wasn't unheard of to play 10 or 12-minute tracks of uh, Mm -hmm. improvisational music. And, you know, I remember in one of my interviews with Joe Sample... He talked about there were 300 record labels in around 1979. And in 1980, the six major record companies bought up all those other independent record labels. And in doing, uh-huh. in doing so, co-joined that with radio stations so that before you'd have regional radio, you might have, a, you know, like, you know, the whispers might be recording in L.A., and somebody's calling them in Oakland, and they're, and they're saying, dude, Sly Stone's playing one of your songs on, on KDIA. So you wouldn't even know that your songs were being played in certain... Re- Charlie Muscle, Charlie, yeah. Mus- Char- Charlie Musselwhite was a Chicago bluesman. His, his, his songs were getting played more in San Francisco than the, in Chicago, and that's why he went out there. So, I, you know, to me, as a radio host, doing it in a rogue fashion, I mean, in 1980, all of a sudden, you could hear... Whatever was being played in Maine could be heard in San Diego. And the homogenization and the formula trip and going away from freeform radio, in my mind, was one of the tragedies of the music industry. And I just wanted you to talk about how integral the radio was for you uh, in your formative years in terms of being able to hear Switched on Bach into Mahavishnu Orchestra into Marshall Tucker Band. Well, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. Uh, there were a few, a few, were there a few radios? There was a, there was a show that came out of Baton Rouge. It was uh, something about uh, Martin. Uh, it was a pretty famous show, um, and, I, and I can't think of the name of the darn thing. Um, It'll come to you later. When it, it does, it, let me know. Yeah, it's one of the few shows that I used to listen to. 
and they'd have you know, various people playing. Um, but just like what they'd have, uh, what's his name, Christian McBride's got a show now where he just uh, introduces people, um, educational kind of thing to various jazz artists through the year. You know, and I, I'd listen to that now and then. But mostly, actually, uh, I, I just went on to bought a ton of LPs. And um, and that's what I what I use as a guide. Listen to them and mimic them, so forth. And by the way, I, I forgot to mention there was one pianist, the first guy that I ever heard. I don't know if you ever heard of him before, but who did influence me a lot. And his name was Claude Williamson. Yeah, I've seen that. That dude was a was a West Coast bop guy, wasn't he? That's right. Yeah, yeah I do. I know advocate. that guy. Bob Edmondson he was too. An av- Yes, oh. he was an advocate of Bud Powell. Jesus, so, man. They, you know, those listening to him early on. Go ahead. Uh, you know, listening to him early on, why I was, I was actually picking up, you know, remnant, uh, bits and pieces of, of Bud Powell, bits and pieces of uh, several other pianists that, you know, that were coming out of that uh, that same realm were you um, were you part of the but, columbia record club i mean how were you going to the store because i mean like that was on the tampa label and uh you know i know i'm talking about when you still lived in new york in upstate new york i mean uh i think we talked about this last time but I, that was kind of the, one of the magical things about new orleans was just that um it was its own little appendage of the south and and ultimately uh, styles, clothing, and especially music that was made on the coasts did not get down there for a long time. So, how were you getting? Was upstate New York? Were you getting the latest releases up there, or how, how did you acquire well, everything on Savoy, Riverside, uh, right. uh, all those kinds of things were coming from New York. Uh, there was a there was a company called Onondaga Music. And I used to go down there when I was a kid, and there was a guy there who loved jazz. The guys, he was kind of crazy, but he used <laughs> to let he us was, go in. He used, to, he used to let us go in this booth. We stay there all day playing out these new ones. <laughs> we were having the greatest time. He thought that was wonderful, uh-huh. so he just let us do it. We went out for years. <laughs> wait, wait, what what town was it in? What town was it in? Syracuse. Yeah. See, so that's the question. Like, okay, so let let's just. I mean, humor me and let me know if I'm right or wrong, but. Like someone like Nistico, who's on Riverside cooking the groove, because he's mm-hmm. a local hero in Cuse, would those records find their way to local radio stations or record shops in Syracuse? Yes, they would. Made sense. Yeah, they would. They they they, they would find their way there, and uh, of course. I think that the, the bigger thing is when he when when Sal went out with Woody, uh, all those recordings with with, with Woody Herman, uh, you know, he, where he was, uh, um, him and Joe Romano and uh, you know that whole saxophone section uh, was really really wonderful. And of course they uh, there's a lot there's bits and pieces of tape. I mean a lot of, a lot of stuff on video. Where cells playing with those things. So a lot of that was available, though. I mean, it, it, uh, yeah, I'm talking more like just the idea that, like, you know, regional, uh, I mean, 
it was that was a hotbed of activity and i just wonder if like it was consciously if there was a decision by someone like Warren Keep news or people that were running cooking the you know like like the Mangione brothers like if, if just because of their where they lived if 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 it just if logically however many pressings they made a ton of them would go to the region that those cats lived in you know yes yeah, exactly I, think, I mean that's I very beautiful you, I, I think what yeah i think quite a few of them did yeah that's beautiful um, i mean what was yeah. your what was the first recording you were on uh the first recording actually uh i didn't i really didn't get into any any recordings until the 70s and then uh i'm on uh i'm on cds with uh with ray brown uh with uh uh charlie rouse uh with art pepper with uh, uh let's see uh Clifford Jordan uh Tina Brooks these were uh, these were live performances these were um uh these were performances for BBC and PBS so is there video of them no video but all, all audio wow so um let's talk about that for a minute i mean Let's be clear. Players Choice is that what the players? What was the name of the well, album? Coach's, Co- Coach's, Coach's Choice was the first record that I ever made. So ni- ni- 1970 is you, was your debut That's, in the studio. Is that right? Yeah, it was seventy uh, around seventy four, seventy five. I think that when that came out. And what, 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 was it done at like Ultra Set? What was the studios uh, down in uh, where that was called? Bogalusa. Bogalusa, Louisiana. Oh boy, Bogalusa! I can't believe, dude. There is app. It's called uh, C O A C H apostrophe S Choice. Coach's Choice. Coach's Choice. And who was the the leader? Al Boletto. Oh my God! This is. I, mean, I wrote almost all the music for it. Holy cow, dude! This is the the sickest thing. Hold on. Okay, first of all. First of all, cut at uh, LaCour cut at Master Phonics um, Studio in the Country and Night Recording mm-hmm. Studio. So it looks like a three different places where it was cut. Is that right? I can only remember going to one. But And then we have Corazon, know. Someday We'll All Be Free, Puzu Zoo, Where's Frank, Machine That's Shop. Right. Where's Frank? Yep. I mean, that's got to be you, man. That's me. <laughs> so talk about that. I mean, I know that, I mean, it says here, it's Boletto, Vidakovich, Huntington, uh, Angel, Trosclair, yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Surpass was on that playing trumpet, too. He was a wonderful trumpet player. Not listed here. Um, Bill Huntington, they're saying he played guitar, but he probably played bass, right? Uh, yes. And uh, the label was Artco, right? A R T. That's right. right. It was. That's right. Exactly. Art Soul Co. jazz and jazz. Fo- I need a copy of this. Um, and there's there's one on here for eight bucks. But can you just talk about? Um, 
because you weren't, you know, ensconced in jingles and commercials and, you know, other cats in Chicago were and, and in LA and things like that. I mean, what, what, are, what, when you listen, we got three and a half stars and uh, three and a half stars in downbeat and Doug Ramsey wrote the review. You mean at the time it was happening? Yes. In downbeat. And what was like the, the objective was because correct me if I'm wrong, but well, the idea was to take, was to jam up some original tunes and some covers of the Playboy Club group, and when you listen back on that album, what are, what is this? What what are your memories of it, and and what, what were you trying to? Con- did you convey what you were trying to convey? Do a show, and then we continue to play. What was happening after six months, seven months? Johnny and uh, and Bill and Alan Joe were getting real sick of this gig because the routine uh, of it was driving them really crazy and myself too. The whole idea of, of you know it was it was like uh, I mean we're on autopilot. We play downstairs, we go upstairs, we go from there, we go to the next thing. You know, any too much of anything is. I mean, you, you go here, Miles Davis, eight nights in a row. By the time you get to the seventh night, you're a little tired of it. Probably on the seventh night. Yeah, yeah still, that's six yeah. six quality nights. But I'm totally with you, man. You, me, you, you would be on it. Let me ask you a question. Right, so no, this, I, this is what happened. Go ahead, yeah, so go ahead. I decide. So I decide. So John says we got to do something with this band. <laughs> he says we've got to get into some uh, some newer music of the '70s, some some maybe you know some some fusion, some kind of damn thing to make this thing more interesting. What can we do? So I thought about what Johnny said to me for a long time. So I, I used to go in the other room when the show was going on and I wasn't needed. And I'd sit down and I started writing tunes. And I started writing all these tunes. You know, like uh, coaches, like uh, Where's Frank, Machine Shop, and some of those other ones on there. And so I brought them to, to, to Johnny. Johnny says, look, Al, we got, we got to get out of this uh, this uh, thing where we're, you know, we're, we're caught up in this, this uh, weird realm of playing the same goddamn things every night. He says, you know, I can't stand it. And he, to a point where Johnny was ready to leave the band because he was monotonous. Well, when I started writing these tunes, Al started learning them. Brought a whole new dimension to this guy because everything he had been playing, he was a Stan Kenton product, you know, from the old days, and he would just basically do standards. Well, now he started playing these tunes that I wrote. And, and, and then Bill started playing guitar, more guitar. And I was playing so electric cool. piano with different kinds of, uh, you know, wah-wah pedals and all kinds of stuff. So now we're into a whole new freaking realm. Well, that went on for six months, seven months, maybe almost a year. And now it says, you know what? I want to record this band with this stuff that Frank wrote. And uh, so we did it. And on Jill, I wrote a couple of tunes for her, Pazuzu, and another tune, and she sang them on the album. And that's how that all transpired. Um, so you were playing, um, essentially, um, you were, you were in a formula trip. So during the jazz sets each night, you started to play this original music That's Be- right. because you couldn't just like go outside the boundaries with the, with the, uh, with the other acts that were in there. 
Um, I think that that's one of the coolest things um, that I've ever heard. I mean, I, I want to read this. It's just so funny you bring this up. Um, is that uh, Johnny? I was just transcribing um, the format, and 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 here you're talking about what I feel is, and I have a big problem with it too. I can't imagine being a musician um, playing the same thing every night. And, and, and last night I um, put on my seventh interview with Johnny for this book. And this is what he said. Um, He said, you have all these challenges that can be very entertaining and can make you a better artist by having the perimeters and restrictions of quote unquote, the same format every night for me you've got to keep the ball in bounds and the game continues i have to keep the arrangement within the boundaries of those perimeters and restrictions it makes you a better creative person if you can approach it with that headspace um you know like he's talking about basically challenging himself i've been through musical experience before that might sound like a boring unproductive uncreative unhappy situation because you've got really kind of that parallels what i was doing well that's what i'm saying he said this is i just want to finish this then you can riff on this he said yeah uh because you've got to be there at the same time every night you got to play the same tune you might think that that would be a complete horrible drag for an artistic person, but all that does is challenge your ability to be an even more brilliant artist. Every night you've got to go there and say, what am I going to do with this baby tonight? Can I really play it the same way? I doubt it, but hey, Mm -hmm. put the gloves on. I'm up for it. I don't mind getting my ass kicked. Uh, The second challenging thing is what can I do to the music to make it even better? What can I do to it that might make it slightly different? Or how can I open myself up to let it do what it wants to do to me and still do the job. Well, the thing now, is, no, the, so, the so thing my, of it is, yeah, go ahead. And I, and I think Johnny's right uh, uh, on his feeling, his perspective on those things. But we tried all those things. <laughs> <laughs> we wore them out. No, you know what? Because I'm listening to him tell me this on 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 the audio last night, and I love the refreshing honesty of. Of you and Huntington and Johnny losing your minds because of the formula trip. And so what did you do? You got it out. You know, you were resourceful enough to create some tunes and um, and go into, well, and, you know, keep stretching vocabulary and doing stuff that was, yeah. um, would you say yeah. that, that um, but, but I want you to talk about that, what he was talking about, because it's not like that's, to me, it's also... Um, can you talk about a particular gig that you may or may not have had where, um, you had to tap into that resource, that, that quote of saying, okay, what am I going to do with this baby tonight? Because I got to get off and we're doing the same, you know, basically it was about keeping the ball in bounds. As long as you can stay in bounds, you can do what you want. Can you talk about an experience when you realize that in fact, instead of feeling it was a drag that you actually had to tap into the, your artistic well even more. Well, uh, those things would tend to, to, to come up when you're playing a steady gig with the same people all the time. What I think is more refreshing and challenging is when you're playing with new people. Like for example, if you're playing with a, you know, if you're playing a gig with Art Pepper and you're playing a gig with Clifford Jordan, <laughs> you're going to play different music 
you're playing things some, sometimes you're playing the original music so you know the whole thing is refreshing from the beginning i mean you're you're you know you're you're taking you're playing different changes to tunes you're you're, you're thinking on a, on a different level each time uh, not too long ago i did a gig with Lou Tobacken. And, uh, one of my dear, one of my dearest one of, friends, man. I love that cat. We, you know, and Luke came in with, you know, his flute playing is like miraculous. And he came in with stuff I never played before. So I think in those situations, when you're playing with those kind of people from gig to gig, uh, fortunately, I mean, you, you, you know, uh, you, you, uh, you're up for the for the challenge, and uh, you have to, you have to play different ways. You have to be able to be sort of a chameleon in that sense um when you're on a steady gig it could take you know it can begin to get boring after a while because the expectations are basically the same you're not playing with somebody that's not very creative um who you know is going to start playing the same tunes basically the same way uh the same format all the time that can get to be i mean on the one hand yeah you can challenge yourself to say uh, I'm going to try this chord change because I've never used it before in this place. And maybe that'll have an effect on the saxophone player. You can so you can start voicing things a little differently on the piano, mm-hmm. uh, which causes the bass player to maybe follow a different bass line than normally would, or maybe the drummer is going to be in a situation where he's going to uh, listen to that kind of thing and approach his rhythms a little differently and that kind of thing. You can, but again, they're all variations on a theme. And as I said, the theme can get, you know, it can it can get monotonous at some point. Well, I, I mean, we, but as that's what's, that's, yeah, t- totally. I mean, I just feel like knowing uh, you guys, there were times just for the bread, you had to take those gigs and you had to figure out a that's way right. to stimulate. Well, that, there's another that's, that's another aspect of it, of right. course. You know, yeah. um, you know, Lewis Hayes told me he said uh, he goes nobody ever told me. Uh, what to play as a drummer uh you know no saxophonist would have the gall to look around and tell me how to play i wasn't going to tell them how to play why the heck are they telling me what to play and then he he got with oscar peterson he said it was the most one of the hardest transitions because oscar had his own compositions and had very definitive changes and you know very distinct kind of i'll tell you uh, I can tell you a story, a Please. little story that Please. goes right along with what you're telling me. Dig it. I went. I was about. I was about 18, 19 years old. Went to the London House in Chicago. Uh, Larry Novak was the opening pianist. Rest in uh, peace. For Oscar Peterson's trio. Yeah. So Larry, you know, Larry's trio was wonderful too at the time. Larry's amazing. So all of a sudden, I know he died. You know, by the way. Rest in peace. Know. I know. Yes, I know. But he was the opening act for uh, for Oscar. Gets up there with Ray Brown. Now it's Lewis Hayes' first night to play with Oscar Peterson's trio. So, so we get cool. up there. He calls uh, Donnelly. It, it must have been three thirty. I mean, that's how fast it was. It was so fast. It was it was unbelievable. Oh. It was like a blur. Oh my God. Uh, at the end of the set, uh, I got up to go to the men's room, and. Uh, I, I walked right, right across the, uh, from the men's room. Here's Lewis Hayes with tears rolling down his eyes. He's I can't got his believe you're telling me. I cannot believe you're telling me this tears, story. Yeah. tears, right. 
He said, I can't make that tempo, man. And it's what he said to me. And they, I'm telling you, that's how, how fast Asker was playing. Um, I you just, know? well, because he was, I, he was crying. Yeah, well, because I, I just, I, like I said, my third book is coming out, and I just felt like I had to. And I, and I want to read you the, the this excerpt from the book um, <clears throat> from Lewis, and then you can riff on it in your own experience. He said, um, I had my first real challenge working with Oscar Peterson and Ray Brown. I played opposite Oscar when I was with Cannonball on several occasions, and I knew Ed Thigpen. With Horace Silver and Cannon, I could do anything I wanted to. It was just up to me. They loved what I did, and I loved them. Playing with Oscar and Ray was different because it was a trio. I had never dealt with a trio before, and this was one of those one of the best trios in the world. They weren't playing around. I couldn't do anything that I wanted to do. I couldn't do anything I wanted to do with Oscar and Ray. It was more or less follow the leader. I had to adjust myself to think in a different way. If you're going to survive and deal with people, you have to catch on fast because you don't have a lot of time. It's more difficult That's to deal right. with a small group than it is a large group. You have to remember the arrangements. You can't forget how these arrangements go because that would throw everything off real fast. Oscar was the only person up there who was setting the direction of how things were going to go. When he did certain things, you had to pay attention. You couldn't be thinking about going your own way. You had to follow him. It wasn't about you. You had to listen to Oscar playing what he was playing and the direction he was going in. You had to have the facility to do that but you also had to be able to think on a certain level. Is there a parallel, in, I mean, in your career, you're not a drummer, obviously, where you can relate to Lewis Hayes bawling in the London House bathroom? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I please share, please it. share. <laughs> I mean, when, when, I mean when, in a trio setting, uh, you, I mean, you're the, the pianist of the orchestra. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and then, of course, with a, with a bass player like Ray Brown, oh my God, I mean, you know, but uh, the, the thing is, um, you are the leader and you're responsible. Uh, in his particular case, his arrangements were very, very difficult. Yes. I mean, uh, and they, and they had to be very precise, as you know, when you when you listen to him. Um, so, you know, uh, and I've written lots, tons of music where... Uh, original stuff and, and and trying to get people to play it is a challenge. I mean, because they're they're, they're looking at it for for the first time. Um, and it, you know, I, I I I don't know if he said anything to you about rehearsing, but I knew that Oscar liked to rehearse. Right. So I may I would imagine that there was there was probably some rehearsal. Well, no, you know what I I guess maybe the better question is because Lewis Hayes was coming from an unbridled freedom with Cannon and Horace who let him do anything he wanted. And did you ever come into a situation because, well, for whatever reason you dug the, 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 the you know, maybe you, you were new to the music, but you, it was a, it was a steady gig or it was, uh, you know, just something you needed a break from whatever you were doing. But the point is that you, you went, you had a situation when you could really just do whatever you wanted. And then all of a sudden you came into, uh, I don't want to say more restrained environment, but there was just more form and then the content dictates the form, and it and it really forced you, and not in a bad way, to uh, think more and know that there were sophisticated. Clearly, you're a great writer. I mean, that's one of the differences. That Lewis was just like playing incredible bop and post bop music, 
and he was bashing all over the place, but he was also doing it. You know, drummers have a little more leeway, especially when you're talking about guys like Ken and, <laughs> and Horace. But was there a time when you just had whiplash almost where you were like, oh, my God, I have to actually retrain my brain to think because I don't have the autonomy that I once had, even though I was playing with other cats. Yeah. Um... And maybe the answer is no. You know, because everybody. It was it was when I was trying to introduce classical music or fragments of classical music to jazz. For example, hmm. uh, in listening to modern jazz quartet, a lot of the mu- music that John Lewis wrote, there was a lot of things that, that Milt Jackson, you know, Bags, that and I worked with Bags before, by the way. You did. That he he he. Uh, there were a lot of things that, that were very were very intricate and almost um, they come out of a classical period of time. Sure. Um, you know, like the fugues that, that John Lewis wrote and that kind of thing. And, and when you switch gears like that, then that stuff really does become very challenging because um, you, you you have to think a whole different way and and play uh, things. You're not playing bebop anymore, in the true <laughs> sense of the word. You know. So how did you, can you can you talk about how you how you because I mean I mean how did you incorporate how did you learn to unless maybe it was a failed project but take us through how you integrated those classical snapshots into melodic improvisation. Well, one thing I listened an awful lot to to Mil, to Milt Jackson. Uh, to, to the quartet for, for, for a, long, a long period of time. And so we kind of knew uh, how he was going to uh, get into that direction. Uh, but the way the tunes were constructed, for one thing, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the names of the tunes. Uh, Django. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you listen to those tunes, they, they take on it in themselves a very classical uh, uh, approach. Uh, so they, they they kind of lead you that that way to begin with, and then of course you have to if you follow it up with improvisation, you're going to kind of stay in that bag for a while. But uh, but this is it's a totally different kind of thing than playing with Cannibal. By the way, I, I did find that picture, but I don't know where it is anymore. But there was a picture of me and Bill Huntington, John Vodakovich, and Cannibal literally. Wait, uh, you did so find it, or you or you or you remember? Fi- I mean, I need to see. I, I need to see it. I, I remember I. I I, I remember seeing it. Uh, oh, I got, it's a case of looking for it to find it. I also want but to go back. Done, and, yeah, go ahead. It was done at the University of New Orleans. Uh, that's where they cut the concert was, and that's where we played with him. I remember it distinctly. And uh, he was drinking a lot of Maalox because he had a lot of uh, upset stomach. Oh, he was so sick, uh, man, so sick. Uh, he he really was. He was so big. And, uh, you know, he, he, we were playing. We made some different comments, and they're kind of interesting, too. Well, what, what, uh, what, what, what? What 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 went down? Uh, well, for example, we were playing a tune. He said, "What do you want to play, Frank?" And you know, tapped me on the shoulder, and I said, "Let's do." Uh, I'm trying to think of something different. So I says, "Let's do you do something to me." So he says, "Okay, so we'll kick it off." So I did, <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> here I am. You know, and I kicked it off. We started playing it. And then he started playing. Uh, he he played about halfway through it, and he kind of, kind of faded off. 
which I thought was unusual. Something wasn't exactly right. Right. So we finished we finished the tune and we were doing like a question and answer kind of thing. And this kid raised his hand and, and Cannonball says, uh, he says, Mister, he says, uh, Mister Adderley. He says, what? He says, what happened in that tune? What if you don't know the changes? And he said, well, son, you just let them go on by. <laughs> that was the funniest thing I ever heard. I mean, you had, it was one of those things where you had to be there. But that's what he said to him. Just actually skip over, and, uh, skip over actual notes. Just go through, just pass through them if you don't know them. Yeah, I, I mean that's what he was driving at. Just let them go on by or just lay out or whatever he was indicating. You know, but of course the kid couldn't believe what he was saying. You know, he you were looking at this gigantic all-star uh and uh there were a couple other things that well i mean that's also sort of the i mean it's incredible you bring this we're just sort of channeling this telepathy because i just was transcribing my interview with the uh the late great gerald wilson and he's telling me (laughs) it's just so funny he said that uh he goes, I knew Miles Davis for a long time. I met him when he was playing in, with Benny Carter's band. In the beginning, he really had to work on his chops to play the trumpet well. And this is the kind of the part that just reminded me of what Cannon said. He said he would miss notes just on the top of the staff, even when he was recording with John Lewis. He made an album after he got, he made an album after he got Cannonball and Coltrane and Paul Chambers called Milestones and and he talks about recording it at a breakneck tempo, and the next time you saw Miles, Miles was playing at a breakneck tempo, and eventually he got his chops together. But it was like, you know, when you yeah. think about those guys, it, what, what Cannon was saying was um, it's really more about feel. Like, if you, if, if you hit a clam, okay, whatever, but even if you don't play it exactly the way it is on the page, if it feels good and it takes the band in a different direction – then that's what jazz is, right? I mean, isn't that what they were about? Well, that's true. You certainly can, yeah. Uh, you know, you can't say I'm responsible for an accident, per se. No, and, but, and there's a big difference uh, between being but, sloppy and, and, and pulling. You, you have to, to, to be an artist, you have to pull that off so that, that you yeah, know, it doesn't you, make, fall apart. You know how, you know how, you have to know how to hide that and correct it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one time uh, Nat, I was talking to Nat early, and he, we were playing a gig in Milwaukee, and he said to me, he says, uh, you know, he says, I can't play the way I used to, to to play when I was younger. He said, but I have to do certain things with my traps in order to get around the horn to still make it sound good and uh, because I don't have the technique anymore, my, you know, my with my armature. Sure. So there's a lot of interesting things, you know, that, that pop up like that. Well, it's incredible. But, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, and maybe you can relate to it completely. I mean, it's very similar to a a pitcher in baseball who was a flamethrower for ten years of his career, and then he has Tommy John surgery, and then he has to resort to being a finesse pitcher, equally strong, yeah. getting the job done in a totally different fashion. Have you adjusted your abilities over time based on? Um, I mean, obviously you're not playing a blowing instrument, but I mean, have you, you can relate to Nat Adderley in terms of compensating for what you don't have, but not worrying about that and still being able to get across, um, you know, the truth of the music. Well, 
you know, for me as a pianist, I mean, I, I try to keep up with my chops, practicing, and that sort of thing. Um, I don't, no, I don't felt feel like I've ever lost anything. Let me put it that way. Uh, still, I could still play, you know, extremely fast tempos and that kind of thing. But you know, but I, but, but I have to work more at it to do it than I used to have to do when I was playing all the time. It's one of those kind of things. If you're playing, you know, four or five or six nights a week. Uh, you know, you're you're you built up a lot of uh, ammunition, I mean, so to speak. I mean, you, you know, you. Uh, but you know, with this COVID thing, there's a lot of people that haven't been playing. Uh, I listened to Kenny Barron the other night. He didn't sound the same to me as I remember him. You know, and he and he, in an interview, he said, "Geez, you know, I haven't played the piano in six months." Well, and especially so, he hasn't you know, play, and he hasn't played on the bandstand, or I mean, and also let's be honest. I mean, how much of it is you guys are so from that school, like <clears throat> Joe Hunt, the great drummer, told me, you know, there are guys today that will practice for the sake of practicing, and then you get into a rut. But the only way that they, they know how to prove their musicianship is by practicing because they don't have the gigs. And Joe will say, you know, you just go listen to the symphony or- orchestra or things like that. Oh. But but, but the, the, thing, the thing, and I ask you yourself, but also with Kenny, like, I really feel like you have to be inspired to want to play, especially in times like this, well, right? Well, that's right. I and, mean, first of all, you have to have a great, you always have to keep a great passion for the music somehow. Right. And you're right. You do have to, you have to be inspired. Even if you are playing solo piano, which in a lot of cases, Kenny does, as some of the other pianists do, you know, it's hard to inspire yourself to play the instrument <laughs> With nobody, nobody else playing. Exactly. And to to feed you uh, the other the elements that are needed, you know, to create something. So, uh, yeah. So that's you know, to, you got to have a lot of gumption, and uh, you really have to know your, you know, your your own uh, uh, capabilities and so forth. I mean, let me ask you um, about. Um, not that you're uh, I mean if you listen to uh, really serious and non uh, objective uh, doctors uh, it doesn't really seem realistic that um, indoor communal spiritual music is going to return is going to return in any way the way we remember it until probably this time next year, if that. Um, and that is a very, I mean, I, I see cats talking now about let's get rid of 2020. Can't wait for 2021. And I don't think people really understand this is a novel virus. We have no answers for it. I lost one of my spirit brothers here who was in his early fifties, healthiest guy I knew tour de force, planetary sciences professor. This thing is, is, beyond lethal and we have no answers for it and i just yeah i wonder with all that being said is there do you um i don't want you to project and pretend that you're going to know what it's going to be like on the other side but um what are some things that that you have just maybe not gotten inspired enough to to compose or necessarily play but when you think about it you said man i am 
really looking forward to that feeling when I get back into a situation that feels like I'm playing music for people again. Is there what's what's on your bucket list? You've done everything. You've recorded with all the masters. You've taught at different universities. You know, you've written a ton of tunes. You've made records. You've played in the bastions of the greatest cities in the country. But is there still another? Is there still um, untethered? Un, un, you know, is there still more grist for the mill for for Frank Frank Palooza, Zulo? Well, uh, you know, I, the one thing I, I haven't done is done uh, any any real. Uh, abundance of playing in Europe, and to me, um, maybe playing in playing over there would be you know, would be something to look forward to. So maybe some kind of a European trip or something. Have you? Um, it's so remarkable, even more because I mean, for you to survive and thrive playing this music in the states, most I mean, ninety percent or more, including. The, the the giants uh, all make their living. They may live in the states. They make their living in Europe, and you never and did went. What is your European experience been? Because most cats go to Japan. They make their living in Japan and Europe. No, that's they have. That's true. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I played St. Marcus Square. Uh, I worked, uh, you know, a couple of times on trips, but they were basically vacations. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, in all honesty, I think most, most of my playing has been in the States and that's good too. But, you know, uh, but if you're asking me what I would like to look forward to doing, that'd be one of the things I'd like to do. <clears throat> so, you know, and I, and I, uh, really want this thing to be over with so that, uh, you know, the, the, the club is, I got a gig coming up in Charlotte at a new place called Little C. I'm working with uh, Greg Abadi, the alto player. Do you know him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very fine uh, alto player. He's he just made a couple of CDs with Phil Woods before he died. Um, and uh, uh, looking forward to that gig. It's um, you know, and I got some other things happening. What's the, do you have, so? When is that gig? And what does it look like? What, what it's indoor? It's indoor or outdoor? It's an indoor. Okay, and what's a Thursday, 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 Friday, Saturday? Okay, and uh, um, the the there's what's the I'm just trying to get the idea of like uh, uh, capacity of the venue, and you know, is it? Are you worried that it could be canceled? No, I'm not because there's been there's been uh, they've been doing an indoor outdoor thing combination, and uh, you know, it, everything seems to be fine there. Right, you I, and I know you want it to get over as quickly as possible, when, uh, but you recognize that there really is. I mean, uh, I don't see a lot of indoor music, and there's absolutely no touring circuit at this time. So, I mean, I, you know, in 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 South Carolina where you live, um, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about um, people that are adhering to a uh i don't even like the word jazz but um what are some of the clubs that that you can give a shout out to that need support i i mean my fear is that based on certain 
uh, things that shake out in the in the political world, um, I don't know if I just don't know if there's going to be funding to rehabilitate independent music venues. So I am very concerned about all my friends who are road dogging it to survive and they play in Idaho and Utah and uh, all these different <clears throat> venues. It's not like they were making huge dough before. What are the places in your town or, you know, in the region that really need to people's attention in order to survive? Uh, well, there are this three or four or five places. Uh, there's a there's a place called the Charleston Grill, which is downtown. It's in a hotel that does jazz six nights a week. Uh, there's a new, new place that opened called Forte. It's also downtown in Charleston. Uh, there's um, a club in Savannah uh, called um, what's the name of that club in Savannah, huh? Called Good Times. Hmm. And uh, let me tell you about Good Times. Go this ahead. is an interesting thing. Yeah. The guy that the guy that runs the club won $15 million in a lottery. Oh, he's one of those cats. All his life. <laughs> yeah, all his life. All he wanted to do was have a jazz club. Oh, well, he's got it man. now. Are you kidding? What's his name? Uh, well, Steve. We... I don't know what his last name. But the guy that books it is uh, Teddy Adams, trombone player. He's also responsible for the Savannah Jazz Festival. Uh, you know, I mean, there's there's places. Um there's, uh, let's see, there's a couple of other places uh, called Proof, a little jazz club downtown. Uh, there's uh, another one um, called Dockeries, which is, uh, yeah, uh, they've done some jazz there. And uh, the gig that I was on until uh, this thing happened was a place called The Establishment. And uh, I, was pl- I was playing there three nights a week. So, I mean, there there's some places to play. Oh, the, the, that's, I mean, Savannah's in, obviously in a different state, but it's not that far. But, you know, uh, you know, Frank, I just, I, I, I'd love to wrap this, this part up, this section up. Um, you know, okay. so many guys, um, I used to think that musicians played to reach some sort of state of bliss, you know. And then over time I found out that, the serious cats that play this kind of music, they don't play for bliss. They do it to effing live. And it's a matter of life and death. And I wanted you to talk about a definitive moment in your life when you and your family, whether or not they were encouraging or not, when you recognized that the music chose you. Hmm. Uh, you don't, you can't, you can't, you can't say, even with all the memories that we're riffing on here, that um, nobody's getting into this kind of profession, uh, this authentic burning music to get rich. You're doing it because your life depends on it. And I just right. wonder if there was like a, a moment when your family or people were like, what are you doing? This, this, there's no logic to it. And you're like, exactly. This is the only thing that feeds me spiritually. Oh yeah, my, my my father was uh, really hard. I mean, he thought, you know, what are you going to do with? It? Where are you going with this music? I mean, what what are you going to do? Uh, and so what I I turned to uh, is education, and that's why I become I became a jazz uh, 
jazz studies professor at three universities. Because, in fact, the last university I taught at, this is an interesting story. When I went there, they said to me, look, we want you to be an artist in residence here. You know, what that means is we want you to be like the basketball team. Play. Just go play. <laughs> and just, and, and uh, we'll. Uh, Crash know, of the backboards. And, and yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, and, and, and we'll support you and so forth and so on as an artist in residence. And that's what I did. So I had the perfect kick because all I did is play all the time. Okay, so, I mean, you could just bring like a a Wurlitzer and play solo? I mean, or you create your own game? Talk about how you just, because that's cool, but did you No, want... I would get calls from Chicago and go, uh, or different places. And, uh, you know, and everybody representing the university. What was the university? I do with Ball State. So Ball State in, in Indiana? Is that in Indiana? Yeah. Yeah. So they really just and wanted do, the, they... I, So I would do I would do I would do master workshops and uh uh different The the um but the idea that they just wanted your name exposed they wanted you playing locally or regionally live yeah. As a resident, yes. like, Regional. you know, and so that's you, right. would you, would you, um, form just, just as, just as though if I was a lecturer or writing a book or writing on something along those lines, I dig. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty hip. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I mean, I guess, can you just talk to me about, um, Huntington is an elder of, Johnny's, and he might be an elder of yours. I'm not sure. Um, can you talk about, um, <clears throat> you know, your personal and working relationship with Johnny Vidakovich? Well, yeah. When I when I moved to New Orleans, uh, I didn't have a place to live. So Johnny said, "Come if you come to my pad to hang out, live there for a while till you get on your feet." And uh, know where you're going, and you know, get some, build up some money at the gig at the Playboy Club. So I did. I got to know Johnny really well. And then, uh, you know, we, we, uh, when I came, became uh, director of jazz studies at Loyola University, I was able to hire people from the city to teach part time at the university. One of which was John and Bill Huntington, for that matter. <laughs> so we had a really nice, interesting network going. Uh, in, in that sense, and um, and I love Johnny's playing. Of course, I mean you know I mean there are other players like Herman Riley and uh, other drummers uh, from there. But you know when it came to playing uh, fusion and second line type stuff, I mean he's he's really the best when it comes to that stuff. You know, yeah. um, Bill Huntington was was just a genius. Dude, those guys, I mean, yeah, he, no, he, he, he uh, Johnny called him an alien, like from a different planet. You know, just totally out. Yeah, I mean, uh, he played with Big Spider back when he was 16 years old. Right, right. He was with George Lewis when he was like 13 or something. I, it's insane. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I mean, if you, that's the, when you, <clears throat> I, I just wanted you to talk about teamwork as a leadership quality. <clears throat> I remember Joe Sample telling me that they were working out some pretty complex tunes on this album called San Francisco with, Bobby Hutcherson and Harold Land and, you know, um, 
and the rhythm section was Mickey Roker and John B. Williams, and they were not part of a working band with Bobby and Harold. So, you know, Joe had to stay after and get them up to speed, or I guess all the guys kind of worked together. And I just wonder, there's no touring circuit in the States. It's so hard to have bands now, which is pretty antithetical to when really you were cutting your teeth, even though you were at the Playboy Club, you know, there there were bands, Mm -hmm. bands, and those bands had farm systems within them, and they produced new leaders, and what gives you, and what, I know it's a different paradigm, but, but what, what is the inspiration or wisdom or that you can give to people about the importance of teamwork and being in a band post COVID, like, and how it will help you musically and how it will help the overall musical conversation grow because like Johnny come like what I love about that it's like the circle of you know you give and you get back like you know uh Pizzullo Pizzullo comes down doesn't have a place to live Johnny said come on get on your feet make some dough you can stay with me boom you get on your feet get established then you're teaching and all of a sudden boom it's uh I can bring Johnny and, and Huntington in for a gig it, that, that's the, that's the jazz that's love. Yep. That's right. Is that does that still exist? Will it still exist? And what is your what is the what gives you faith if you think it will? I can't talk about the younger generation. I can only experience tell you about the experiences I had and during that time. Uh, but I think it is different now. Um, I know it's different. Very different, uh, you know, and uh, there was a, a certain sort of camaraderieship that uh, existed, no matter whether you lived in, I'm saying New York, or you lived in New Orleans or wherever. But uh, you got to know the musicians; everybody was reliable. They, they counted on each other. Um, um, Talk about different things. You don't have that now. I mean, this, this younger generation of players—they just don't do that sort of thing. Well, do they have? I guess because you've been in academia so much teaching, do they really have the ability to do that? And do they have the resources? Do they have the the alacrity? I mean, they're they're given what they got, but you know, there's. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, it's just, it's, it, to me, I'd be conflicted at a certain level, um, you know, knowing that, uh, I guess it just comes back to seeing society viewing, I mean, we're dealing with insane inequality not seen since the Great Depression. So, you know, and then all this destruction, uh, you know, with, with weather and and you see people that can't pay bills and then all of a sudden it's like wait you're talking about we're going to fund the arts why that's not significant that's not a priority that's not important mm-hmm. and it's like what like don't you understand that the, the way people get soul is by experiencing beautiful live music in all different capacities and that's how you have soul and that's how you develop heart and what are we dealing with we're just going to go into some car, car, carnage you know, it's it, to me, yeah, I yeah. just, I, 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 I mean, you say I can't speak for the younger generation, but it seems like you've interacted with plenty of them. Uh, 
And uh, and I just don't, you know, to me, as a 42-year-old, especially in this time, I mean, it's remarkable because <laughs> one of the chapters in my book is called Sing for Your Supper, and it's about how Bob Cranshaw was playing on Sesame Street and, you know, how guys were able to get by doing radio registry in New York. And then they could go out at the clubs and they didn't have to worry about getting paid because they were already making a living doing their thing. That's because musicians were viewed as professionals. And, you know, all these wild stories. And I just say, my God, the airline industry, people keep flying. Uh, uh, The NFL, they're, they're playing their games, no fans. Um, Wall Street continues. So many businesses, sectors have continued to go forward. The, the one industry that has basically completely stopped is music. It's insane to me. It's crazy. And I, and I worry so much that with this stop and with this inequality and with this extended pause that and that and the lack of understanding at the political level of how important a musician is, a working musician is, I just don't know what is going to be. Johnny said that on the other side, it's going to be even more doggy dog than it was before. Uh, any of the cats that had big names are going to get even more of the pie. And whoever was just being creative and trying to create new music and road dog, and it was going to get even less. But even so, I just wonder inherently, you know, Road Doggin was the last, for younger cats anyway, it was the last vestige of being able to make money as a musician. And um, I'm not even asking for an answer. I'm just saying uh, I'm greatly worried about the direction we're heading. Um, no, I, agree, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it's tragic. It is, it's, it's kind of sad in that sense. Uh, but, uh, you know, I can remember when I was working at Lou and Charlie's, that little jazz club on oh, North sure. Rampart Street. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I played there with Lou Mitchell, Art uh, Pecker, a whole bunch of different people. Witten Marcellus used to come in and say, hey, Frank, can I sit in? <laughs> Let's say, yeah, go get your horn, Witten. This is just prior to when he went out with Art Blakey. Sure. He probably, came, he probably came in. See, when I was living in New Orleans, there were two pianists that played for everybody in the city and everybody that came into the city. That was Ellis Marcellus and myself. Wow. In fact, Ellis would call me and he'd say, I can't do it. Can you do it? <laughs> yeah, I can. And if I and I'd call him, I'd call him up and I'd say, All right, listen, man, I can't do it. Can you do it? And he'd say yes. And that's how it went that went back and forth for ten years. That is so inside straight right there. That's so freaking amazing. Yeah. So I mean you yeah. were the I mean, he used to yeah. tell me. No, go ahead. He used to tell me about his kids all the time. You know, Loyola, the old school of music, had three stairways that went up and down. And then I'd walk in, get ready to teach, and he'd yell out down at me. He'd say, Frank, you should hear my kids. And I said, which ones? He says, both of them. He said, <laughs> Winton and Bradford, because Jason wasn't born yet. Sure. Delfeo wasn't. And, uh, and he'd tell me that, you know, he told me about the incident where he went to uh, New York. He played the humble concerto. When he finished playing the humble concerto. My God. I mean, you know, it must have been, how would you like to have been there? <sighs> you know. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just interesting the way things were constructed at one time in, our, in the paradigm of our society. And, um, yeah, I mean, Frank, uh, 
we will continue this conversation. Uh, I, I, when is the Charlotte gig? October 20, I think it's the 27, 28, 29. All right. Well, um, after that, maybe early November, we can come back and, and talk about it, uh, and see what your, um, reaction is. But I know that, yeah. One of the things I wanted to tell you is my, my favorite pianist today, if I had to pick one over the last seven or eight years, I would say Keith Jarrett is my guy. Why is this? Huh? I mean, is more of his, are you, are you referring to, you're just digging into his archives or, or his modern playing is what's getting you off? Oh, it's his minor playing. All the stuff he recorded for Blue Note. Okay. All Ta- the standard stuff. You know, you know, just humor me because I, I he's not, uh, you know, I'm going ham paws and, uh, well, I don't even got a whom I'd say. But what what is it about his, his playing <clears throat> and specifically uh, which albums as a leader are you focusing on? Because I, I need to get hip to this stuff. Oh, Keith Jarrett. Well, you got to you got to get all the stuff he did for Blue Note, all the standards, the standards album. There's a box of like six, six CDs, and, and they're unbelievable. I mean, you hear everybody in this plank. Uh, it's such an amalgamation of of uh, wonderful playing. I mean, you hear everybody in his playing. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's be something that you probably ought to check into. I'm just. I want to be clear. This is a modern Blue Note recording, uh, not something that was done back in the in the uh, gravy years. Of these, are done, these were all done in the 70s and 80s. Wow. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I know. All right. Well, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I'll check it. I mean, it's it's nice to incorporate every influence and then cut above it and, and, and also have your own voice in there, too, which he does. And that's well, the, well that's... Johnny is a big advocate of Keith Jarrett, too. Johnny. In fact, I think he might have introduced me to him many, many years ago. Yeah, 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 no, I, um, he's, he's, he's ridiculous, but so is, so are you, man, and, and I just want to say, if you, if you find, I mean, can you set, can you text me a picture of you and, and, and Huntington and Johnny from those days, or, because I'd like to incorporate it into the web post when this goes up as a podcast. Yeah, and by, by the way, when is that going to be available to listen to? Immediate, dude, we're, dude, give me a couple hours, all right? <laughs> It's going to be up real soon. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah, dude. Is this, we're going worldwide on this, dude. Plus, I'll be trans- I mean, How do I find it? How, I, I, how do you, I find you, it? First of all, I'll text you. Uh, have you been getting my texts? No, because I don't text. Okay, so that... But you can, but you can text them to, to Donna. She's my significant other. Yes. Her, let me give you her number. Okay. Did Bill Huntington talk about our relationship, he and I? I'm going to send you that interview. Uh, we, 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 we only got through part. It was a mind-blowing um Anyway, you got a lot to dive into, my friend, and and if not, then we'll we'll get into it later because, uh, you know, it's important. Um, so yeah, Frank, uh, much love to you, man, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, thanks so much. Cheers, brother. Bye. Later. Another day here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you later.